And the day that we stop learning from that is the day that you become worried because you think then you become complacent and you will miss things afterwards. So I love this learning environment that we can create and help us all to kind of just achieve our maximum for the benefit of the patient at the end of the day. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. As a practicing family doctor with expertise in lifestyle as medicine, my purpose is to encourage and support you in terms of positive health, personal growth, and all things well-being. As I say, to never stop starting. Each month on a live webinar, I teach learning by doing and learning by being. The why and the how of health enhancing habits, giving you the science as well as support strategies to live with more vitality. I'd like to invite you to join my self-development club. To learn more and to sign up, visit drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair today by Dr. Lisa Cunningham, who's a consultant in emergency medicine and the Hospital Emergency Medical Service in the West of Ireland. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much, Mark. How are you? I'm great. Lisa, what's it like to be a doctor in a helicopter going to emergencies? I mean, I find that idea fascinating. I think it's the best job ever. I think it's just the most amazing job, but it takes a lot of training to get there. So when you do get there, it's also hugely satisfying because it almost feels like that you've earned your place to have this skill set to be able to deliver it and that you've went through kind of like a training pathway, almost like a rite of passage to get to that point. So it's hugely satisfying and, and it's so exciting, though. It's brilliant. Just for our listeners, I mean, how many years of training have you done just to get to where you're at right now? 12. So I qualified in 2010 and um, that's 2022 now. So I've done the intern year, then I've done the emergency medicine training program, which in total was eight years. Then I've done a fellowship year and then had a few kids in between as well. So still kept up the training. So 12 years, yeah, to get here. And I'm just at the end of the training train, but the beginning of kind of the consultant career train. Yes. Well, I think that's one of the really interesting things about this topic called mindfulness is that you appreciate there are never endings because every ending is really a new beginning. Yes. In in the constancy of life, you know, everything is changing and everything is ongoing. You know, a line in your bio really captured my attention, Lisa. It said, you know, that you enjoy peak performance in challenging environments. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the most challenging experience you've come across so far in your world of being a doctor involved with helicopters and so on? I've really enjoyed this over the last maybe two years, which is what I've really Mm. realized that I actually enjoy, but never could put a term on it before this. Mm -hmm. When you get to the helicopter stage, I think the peak performance is that you have a sick patient, a very, very sick patient that you need to perform, everybody needs to perform to the maximum to be able to get that patient out the other side to get the definitive care. So that involves a huge amount of human factors. 
Mm-hmm. It involves a huge amount of like playing with the other teams that you're with that you have never met before. So that you arrive on scene and there's the police there, there's paramedics on the ground crew that are there, there's relatives that are there, and you all have to conjoin together to be able to get the best outcome from this patient. And you do that maybe three or four times a day. How do you keep yourself into that peak performance mode is what I just absolutely enjoyed. And I went on such a trajectory of learning that over the year in the UK when I was there from zero to 100. Um, I suppose one of the most challenging environments would, oh, like, I mean, you go to any sort of a road traffic accident or even a cardiac arrest, which we would think is basic as an emergency medicine doctor, that mm-hmm. is a basic bread and butter thing that we do. There's always a learning point from it. There's always, you still have to perform under pressure and get that patient out the other side. Mm-hmm. Or if the patient isn't able to come back, if you're not able to you know, rescue them, you still have a whole other scenario afterwards of dealing with the environment afterwards. So I can't pinpoint one, but road traffic accidents definitely are a difficult one to go to, but also equally, you know, the death of, uh, of a loved one and having to deal with that afterwards mm-hmm. is just as challenging as a road traffic accident. Mm-hmm. But as you said, a cardiac arrest might be a basic thing for someone like you, but that can be life or death for, for a patient out there. And, and I really think it's wonderful that we've got so many really well-trained specialists in emergency medicine and the helicopter emergency medical service available as well for these accidents. Of course, you'd, you'd, you'd hope they'd never happen, but when they do, it's great to have that sort of backup available. Mm-hmm. And there is definitely a certain person that that is in that um you know in that environment especially the pre-hospital and it is people there are people who just relish that performance and, and making sure a team coheves together to get the outcome for the patient um i'm just thinking back on a recent cardiogram that we had in hospital of where i am in mayo university hospital but we always do a debrief afterwards we try our best and i asked the pre-hospital crew to come in as well and just to listen to from their side as well and talking about the flow of what happens outside the hospital, then what happens in the hospital, and then what happens in the follow-on afterwards. They got a huge amount of benefit listening to it from us. The guys that work in the emergency department that may have never had a concept of what happens in the pre-hospital in relation to trying to get somebody down from an upstairs bedroom, navigate down. It was just a huge learning experience and it just provided such an amazing opportunity for all the guys to get to know each other's worlds. I think that's great. I think we really all can learn from each other. Everyone has their own you know, unique set of strengths and abilities. And I think healthcare is very much a team game, isn't it? It's very much about the team. Oh, absolutely. And like you said, but we learn from each other. Our bread and butter is the cardiac arrest. And it might be so algorithmic, but I always say to the doctors and the pre-hospital guys, you will learn something from every case you have. Whether it's that has been the most amazingly run cardiac arrest, you will still learn something. There always has to be a learning point from it. And the day that we stop learning from that is the day that you become worried because you think then you become complacent and you will miss things afterwards. So I love this learning environment that we can create and help us all to kind of just achieve our maximum for the benefit of the patient at the end of the day. I love that idea, Lisa, that we never stop learning, we never stop growing. And you never stop starting really in many ways to, I suppose, become more effective in, in what you do. I think that's such an idea that that's transferable outside of healthcare. It's in, into every business, into every environment, into every form of life, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, you know, since I've become a consultant, just there's other opportunities that have opened up for me. And one of them was to kind of step into the sports medicine world, into that sort of on the pitch and the whole other environment. I was absolutely petrified and so nervous going into another environment 
that, you know, I would happily take a heart attack or a stroke in a resource room. And that's more calming for me than having to step out onto a pitch. But, you know, you you be comfortable being uncomfortable and challenging yourself in those environments. Mm. You know, stepping into another role of, you know, opening up a clinic or something like that, just going into a business world, just relishing those learned opportunities that you're going to have and surrounding yourself with people that will help support you with it. Well, it's like everything, isn't it? When you get out of your comfort zone, that's really when you can muster up your strengths and that's when you can really grow uh, as, as a person. What motivates and drives you, Lisa? You know, what are your own strengths? What are your values? My what motivates me really every day getting up is the satisfaction. This probably sounds a bit selfish, but the satisfaction that I get from helping other people. It's almost that it is kind of like a, a selfish way of doing it. But I know that when I get up and if I have had a horrendous shift the night before, it's parked, it's left there. I try to have a good sleep, but I wake up the day again and I'm like, right, back on again. We have Mary who has a urine infection. I, I know that I'm going to be able to help her with relief of her com- of her pain. I'd be able to give her comfort. And that's satisfying to me to provide that satisfaction to the other patients and to the other people. Um, so I, that kind of motivates me to get up and do my bits and pieces that I know I've had that experience. I've had the feeling that I know I can help people. So it still keeps me going in my work. And then my strengths, like I would probably say now, definitely over the last two years, the communication is a good strength of mine now. Um, mm. You know, even working in the UK and having a Mayo accent, I could still communicate quite well. I thought I got away with a lot of stuff over in the UK having an Irish accent. And that was a really key thing for me. And it opened me up a little bit more into talking about accents and finding out, you know, why I got away with so much over there. I could go up to a policeman and say, how are you? How's things? But like, the the UK guys would never be able to do that. And sure, I'd always get a little bit of a, oh, hello, what part of Ireland are you from yourself? A bit of crack, a bit of fun. So the communication, I was able to kind of start making my way, getting more information, getting the things I needed to get done by my communication skills. And I do think that at the end of the day, I've kind of strengthened those hugely over the last two years. Um, so I think that's that's a good strength of mine. I would like to think. That's fantastic. And of course, you know, an old saying that I that I love and I've used it often on the podcast over the over the last year, you know, we we make a living with what we get, but we make a life by what we give to others. And you really encapsulated the importance of yes. service and contribution. Mm-hmm. And I really think that that's one of the real strengths of of, of holistic medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And being able to see that at the end of the day and know that you've done it. It's just fantastic. But you know, you can transcribe that to any profession that you work in. Once you get the satisfaction out of helping the other person from whatever it is, whether you're working in retail and you've found somebody's found their bridal dress, whether it's they wanted that pair of shoes for the Christian, you, you get that satisfaction out of knowing that they're going away delighted and have had such a good experience. I always say to the medical students that came up there recently that um, I was chatting to one of them, their fourth year medical student who were having a cup of coffee. They were saying about how they were in at delivery and um, they were describing it. I said, I hope you realise that your presence in that delivery room is going to be spoken about for the rest of that child's life. At the 21st birthday, they will always remember there was a medical student in the room. They may remember your name, but like you've played a small part in their life, but it's a huge part actually in their perspective of it. You might never remember it, but I think that we give that to people and we might not realise it. So everything needs to be accounted for. Absolutely. And and you're you're so right when you talk about, you know, you know, that sense of purpose and service being so transferable. And mm-hmm. we can all cultivate more of a sense of purpose uh, and meaning in our daily lives by by connecting more with other people. Lisa, can I ask you about stress? Because I mean, you're a medical doctor, you're an AE consultant, you're on the front line, you're married, you've got three kids. I mean, you've a lot of balls in the air. 
<laughs> yeah, and you're going to probably ask me what stresses me. <laughs> but the one thing that I'll say is like, it's the little things that probably stress me the most. I could mm. absolutely no problem have a busy resource. Do I feel stressed? Probably not at that moment in time, but I'll get through my bits and pieces. But what stresses me the most is the little things. And Bernard, my husband, always laughs at this. But like doing school lunches stresses the hell out of me. Mm. I'm like, what do I put in? Are they going to eat? Are they not? And those are the little things that actually stress me out. Um, how do I deal with the stresses then? I like One of the biggest things I do is compartmentalize them. So I can't, I can't not deal with them. You have to deal with them. You have to either write them down. So I do a good bit of journaling. So any mm. of the stresses, if it's something that I physically want to rip up as a stress, I will write it down in a journal and just take out the page, rip up the page, put it in the fire, burn it, shred it, whatever it is. And physically I've seen that stress go, but I still have to deal with doing a lunch at the end of the day. But I just mm. feel for myself that dealing with it, not to sweep it under the carpet, do something with it and mm. be able to deal with it. And maybe that's a bit silly coming from somebody who is from active stress I don't normally get stressed with a bad resource or with a bad RTC mm. I think my skills that I've learned over the 12 years just tells me how to deal with that but it's little things that I do actually stress mm. with and I still have to I suppose find a way to deal with school lunches <laughs> and I suppose when you're using all your skills at work I suppose you're in a state of flow you're doing something mm -hmm. you're so well trained it's automatic to you and you're just in the zone as it were yes. as you said peak performance whereas those little things can really irritate oh, yeah. and uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a really interesting idea, though, the writing it down. James Pennebacher talks about emotional journaling, that it can mm. be so cathartic having that brain dump on paper. What else do you oh. write down? Do you write down good things as well, like gratitude? Um, I did do that a bit. Um, actually, it started during COVID, mm. uh, I suppose, when, when it started in COVID. What we actually done is one of the girls here, uh, the navigation coach in Ballina, Tara after she actually donated a load of journals to us in the emergency department. This is what the first wave, so probably around April, May time of the first part of COVID. I gave them out to a few of the girls in uh, ED and ICU as well. And we actually kept one for the ED ourselves in Galway. And it was lovely. I remember reading over us then before I went to the UK in June and the gratitude one, one that struck with me straight away was um, somebody had a gratitude down of being able to smell freshly cut grass and mm -hmm. it calmed her. And that's what she loved to smell coming into work. And you know, in the middle of a pandemic when everybody was absolutely petrified, something so simple as the smell of cut grass. And I remember sitting there going, oh, my gosh, I absolutely love that as well. So it started me on a little bit of just writing down the few little gratitudes that we have each day to set yourself up or not even now. I probably don't write them down, but I definitely think of them every morning when I'm traveling to work. But what 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 am I happy for? What how do I feel and what am I doing well? The word dumping, as you describe it, I've probably been doing that for a while and never realized what that actually meant until the last two years. I find it hugely uh, relaxing to be able to word vomit, word dump onto a piece of paper, my worries, my fears, my stresses, not necessarily that I'm not dealing with them, but ripping them up and seeing them physically go away has helped me a huge bit. And I, I don't know, there's obviously some neuroscience that goes with mm. that. Um, and I think it's really, really cathartic for me to do that. I think that's great. And, and and it's great for you, which is the most important thing, Lisa. But, mm. you know, as opposed to sort of, as you said, not dealing with them, you're actually acknowledging that you have stress mm. because we all have stressors. It's called life. We're all human. Mm -hmm. And you're acknowledging you're creating space to actually write them down and uh, give them a bit of space. And then you're you're figuring out a way to deal with them that's, Absolutely. that's constructive. And there may be the same worry there for two months there like it might be might pop up like a week later or maybe mm. two weeks but it's not that I but I'm, it might be in the process of actually dealing with that worry and it could be something like 
oh, I don't know, that the car needs something fixed in the future or something like that, that I, it's still a worry that I'd have at the back of my mind, but physically writing it down, ripping it up. I've acknowledged it, but it might come up again in two weeks time and say, oh God, have I actually dealt with that email? Did I do that about the car? And then you'd get on that same trade again. So I know I'm going through the process again. So it's not just one worry, off it goes, that's it, I'm done with it. No, no, it may come up and resurface itself again. What other habits have you, Lisa, in terms of staying healthy yourself? <laughs> back to communication. Talk with Bernard. Like mm-hmm. we're dumping onto Bernard as well. And there's definitely times that he knows if there's a little bit of a worry that I have or a stress that I have, or if I'm feeling a little bit of extra pressure, he has a great way of kind of just being able to kind of pull it out of me. But in the last year, we've said our relationship is so good because we actually sit down every two weeks or so, or maybe maybe once a month to say how we get on. You know, how are we getting on as a family? You know, are we still meeting what we wanted to do because we have certain goals as a family? Are we meeting our own personal goals? How can he help me with mine and how can I help him with him? So I think this is how we, we deal with it. We don't compartmentalize it. We say out, you know, I'm not too happy. You know, we're hoping to buy a house next year. We're not hitting our savings or targets. You know, how are we going to change that, et cetera? So by speaking and having a partner or somebody that you can offload that to, but also take that load off them as well when the time comes so it's a two-way street so that's definitely how I would help like if I didn't have Bernard as a partner oh my gosh mm. <laughs> I'd be in a gut for somewhere I swear he's we're just we're, we're definitely there's a partnership but a friendship there he's my best friend to talk to isn't that fantastic and you know it really highlights how beneficial strong supportive relationships can be for us in our lives absolutely really good and even you know my family are really good as well and before I went off of the SPR training program which you know to, to do this you, you do have to give up an awful lot of time I already had one child I, we were planning the second child and I remember saying it to my mum you know that if I do this I'm going to be traveling around the country I don't want to move the kids around and she was very much don't worry about childcare. We're going to help support Bernard whichever way we can. Um, so they played a key role as well as taking that stress off me and any worries that I would have had to be able to fill that goal that I wanted to do, which was to be a consultant at the end of the day. Sometimes I ask people, you know, what's your gap in terms of your health? In other words, what's what's your biggest area for improvement right now, Lisa? What would you say? <laughs> I would actually say at this you probably get this with, with other women that you speak with is imposter syndrome and having mm. self-confidence. I I've definitely recognized in the last two years that I almost feel like, you know, what just by luck that I've gotten here. When somebody had actually said, well, luck is the making of actually hard work and dedication. Mm. But I 100% imposter syndrome feel that I shouldn't be in this place and then not giving myself enough credit for being where I am. But it's an Irish thing as well. We mm. can't do that you almost feel like that you're being overconfident or you're being cocky if you say that. Mm-hmm. But definitely self-confidence and the imposter syndrome is is a thing that I really need to improve on. Do you think that's a male-female thing or do you think it's an Irish thing or what What? What are your thoughts on it? I mean, your <laughs> I think colleagues, it's both. Lisa, I think that... it's a, oh yeah, I think it's a both. It's an Irish thing and then a female thing, which is even worse for me. Yeah. Um, and I think the Irish thing is just that, you know, it's the whole don't be too confident in general. Mm-hmm. Um, which does happen for male and female as well. Mm-hmm. But the female part of it, and I really do enjoy reading about male-female kind of ratios and stuff. And you know, females mm-hmm. do tend to have lesser confidence. They feel like that they are, won't put themselves forward for that job if they're not 100% qualified for it. I mean, that's all absolute evidence that's there and has been mm-hmm. gathered from around the world. And we need to put ourselves out there a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I get really angry when I do hear about quotas and I, you know, talking mm-hmm. about 
you know, I think it's the best person for the job, but I don't think mm. that men should be disproportionately affected by that, by the lack of us having that confidence to put ourselves on that perch to be able to, to, and I do feel that men sometimes get vilified and victimized about this, but this is actually our reflection as females that of our own self-confidence. So we need to step up and make ourselves that little bit more approachable for that confidence, for that job, for whatever it is, and stop feeling that imposter syndrome and stop blaming the men for it. Yeah, because as you said, it is about ability. And I think what's also important is that young girls growing up need, you know, positive role models. And it's great to see, you know, people like you, women like you in leadership. I think that will really inspire the next generation that's coming up as well. Yeah, well, I have three kids. So I have two boys and a girl and the girl was just three yesterday. Kahal is eight, Kuan is six. Um, And it's interesting because... I worried so much about how me being away um, at certain times of their lives would go to, would potentially affect them. Mm. And as Bernard said, well, I'm a caregiver as well, Lisa. You know, why can't I take them to the doctors? Why can't I do that that sort of thing? Why is it always the female role that has to do it? Mm. Kahal remembers me being away as in while I was training. Kuan ha- doesn't really have any recollection. He knows I was in the UK last year. Kuan has just, just turned six last week. He remembers mm. I was in the UK last year, but he has absolutely no kind of knowledge of me being in Dublin or Limerick or anywhere else. Fela mm-hmm. will never remember me being away. And uh, as Bernard just say, it swells my heart with pride to see how robust and absolutely independent this young colleague is. And he goes, you know, she's an absolute chip off you, even though you didn't have what I feel is a big impact on her little short life so far. But I know that what is to come is that she will see that there is, you know, two parents with two different goals in life and it doesn't have to be a career goal it can be anything that you want to be and whatever it is you support each other to do that and I think that's going to be the biggest benefit for the three kids. Given that you've mentioned imposter syndrome Lisa what would you say looking back at your 22 year old self? Um, oh, I, I would just say just have more confidence and stand up for yourself there's definitely been times where I I felt that um, I was put in a box, you know, because I didn't stand up for myself and I didn't stand up for things that should have been proper for, I've got to say, for women and training more or less. Like, you mm. know, there was things that were said to me along the way and I just shut shop. But I was told by one or two other female colleagues, kind of a little bit older, you know, just put your head down and get on with it. That is an absolute awful way to think about things so mm. I think I would have said to myself just stand up for yourself a little bit more you're going to burn bridges but you know what you're, you're doing it for the the greater cause at the end of the day if there was another 22 year old um you know Mary that was coming behind me that had to go through certain things that I did as long as I've stood up for it and know that I could be able to lessen the stress and lessen the impact that would happen to that other girl that's coming behind me then it makes it all worthwhile at the end of the day and you do it for the good reasons and the right reasons. So really you're talking about leadership, Lisa. I mean, in that space, I mean, who do you most admire and why? There's another consultant, actually, he's not too far away from you, Dr. Mick Malloy, who's down and over your side of the woods. He's one Mm. of the emergency medicine consultants. He would be a fantastic mentor for me. And just when you said that question, he was the first one that popped to my head. So, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, like I I sent him so many presents afterwards because I said he got me out of just so many ruts from my mindset going through the training program when I just felt like I wanted to get off this training train I wanted to flip the desk and kick it all in and just say that's it I'm finished but literally a five minute phone call to him would tweak me back around again and I think his experience of what um his life experience in general just he had such a way about it that he was just a fantastic mentor he still is um and if he listens to this he realized how much because I don't think I've ever said it to him that he was just 
somebody that I looked up to and I still do absolutely 100% look up to. And if I have bits or pieces or if I feel frustrated about certain things from a medical perspective, quick text off to him and I get a voice message back from him. Like he's always been there. So he's, he's great. And it was, was it because he was there to listen and support you and advise? Yeah. And it was, it had all came around totally by accident um, that we happened to meet at a conference and because we'd never worked together, we never trained together. Um, and we met at a conference and he, I don't know, he was just, he obviously sensed something maybe that he reflected, maybe that he saw in himself 10 years previously and just helped me and advised me the whole way along, like, and never made me feel that I could ever not trouble him for anything. And he was very pivotal towards the end of my training. And he knows himself, there was a certain time that I just was absolutely ready to give it all up. And he helped me. I've come across this many times. And, and I think often, if you do mentor somebody, you don't really appreciate the really huge impact you can have on that person uh, over the longer term. No, I have said it to him before, but I don't think I've said it to him as much as I have here but when you said that something just came to mind there I had a girl they come up to me um, she's an obstetrics and gynecology SPR now in Mayo University Hospital and within the first two or three weeks that I started in July she started the same rotation she came up to me and she said "Um, Dr Cunningham can I have a word and of course I get a bit freaked out when somebody says Dr Cunningham means I'm in trouble and (laughs) I didn't recognize her at all but she said to me that um, she goes you mightn't remember but we had a conversation 10 years ago at the Order of Malta competitions one night of course then I started getting very worried because sometimes those conversations at two o'clock in the morning for these social events aren't the best ones and um, she was contemplating to go into medicine and um, I had a great chat with her and I told her what an amazing job being a doctor is and she said I gave her the confidence to apply for medicine and to enjoy it because so many people had to- totally told her it's horrendous the hours are long etc but mm-hmm. that conversation to, for her actually did pivot her into saying, no, I am going to do it. And now she's an Obscani SPR. She came up to me within the first one or two weeks of being there to say that, thank you for that conversation. And now I had no recollection of it. So it really struck me that what we say to other people could have a huge impact onto it. Um, So that just actually popped into my head there when we were talking about that. I think it can have a massive impact. And a phrase I like to use is the idea of being an encourager to really encourage and empower others to be that best version of themselves and really to let their own light shine. And, you know, I think everyone has their own strengths and talents and abilities. I don't think it's for any of us to try and put people off, let them discover for themselves where yeah. their interests and strengths lie. Absolutely. Um, you know, in a team we always say to the emergency medicine team for the consultants, there's always good to have strengths and weaknesses. And I know my weaknesses is audit or research. I absolutely cannot tolerate. I don't like it, but I'm very, I really enjoy teaching, for example. And then we, everybody has a strength to play in that team function to be able to get to the end goal and help support manage a department. So who is it for anybody to say that don't go into that because you won't enjoy it, et cetera, when you really don't know what somebody will be able to shine at? Can I ask you, Lisa, about, you know, a tough time in the past, maybe some setback, something that happened uh, to you in your training career, whatever. And, you know, because of that life event, you know, how have you grown and what lessons have you learned? Yeah, um, there was one that definitely struck me when um, and you, when you had said that question to me and it popped out straight away. Um, so that's why I decided to explore it a little bit more. So it was pre-COVID, or sorry, it was during COVID, just at the very beginning. Um, the hospitals were under a huge amount of stress. Mm. 
not necessarily with overwhelm of patients coming in, but as in like that everybody was mentally stressed about the mm. protocols changing 20 times a day. What's going to happen? Theatres were cancelled. Outpatients were cancelled. There was almost an eerie feeling around the hospital. And people changed. People changed an awful lot. We were still having to do our job as the ED. Um, and a very tough time that happened is just that um, we ended up getting more or less the most horrendous outbursts from in-house specialties to the ED. And you felt the pressure of every part of the system onto your shoulders in the ED. And there was multiple times where there was just, you know, unprofessional and unacceptable behaviours that had went on. Uh, and one in particular that I'm just thinking of, that was a stressful event that I ended up having to take a few days off the stress leave. And in my 10 years up to that point of working in emergency medicine, I had never had to have any stress leave at all. And it was not as a result of the workload because we weren't that busy at the beginning, at the beginning of the COVID. It was actually got to do with mannerisms and everything with everybody else. So that was a huge, it's my first time ever having a panic attack. I've never had it before. Couldn't catch my breath, mm-hmm. physically feeling scared in the hospital for certain mm-hmm. things. So what came out of that was that I absolutely became stronger, that I remember saying to myself that I will never, ever let anybody else make me feel that way. Mm -hmm. So I will never let anybody make me feel inferior without my consent, which is a very famous quote. Mm -hmm. And Bernard used to send that to me nearly every day when I was going to work out during this stressful time. And I think from that, being able to stand up a little bit more for yourself and actually say, I don't agree with this. I feel that this is a better way to do it came out of it and I would always encourage people to do that as well so my communication I so when I said about the two years ago when it started that is the event that it started on my path and I just excelled into it then with the aviation in, in the UK so that life event really was a change of part to me that I'm never going to let anybody do that to me again and make me feel that way and I need to communicate it a little bit more and if it is the case that I'm going off on stress leave as a result of it don't just go off on stress leave it needs to be addressed as well but I think you've been courageous enough to share that you're not bulletproof, that you're not impervious to life's stressors, that you experienced an episode of panic, that you had an episode of severe stress. You even ended up taking a few days off work with it. You know, that's very admirable of you to, to mention that, Lisa, because I think everybody has their challenges. Everybody has setbacks. Everybody has blue days, as it were, in life. And uh, no one's bulletproof. And that's why it's so important to build a resilient mindset and a rich emotional bank account of positivity. And as you have really highlighted in this podcast, to have key people around you uh, that are going to strengthen and support you and encourage you to be your best as you encourage them. Yeah. Well, the famous saying is like, you know, tell me your friends and I tell you who you are. And Mm -hmm. I feel that if you have people that are negative or constantly looking at the negative around you, you become sucked into that Mm -hmm. negativity. You need people around you to say, absolutely, Lisa, of course you could do that. Absolutely. You know, absolutely, Mark, that sounds amazing give you your honesty but also you know might be able to navigate you a little bit to say well I don't think that that feels like that it might be the best plan I think because x y and z but not necessarily to shoot you down completely with it be positive surround yourself with the positivity and I think the positivity just breeds positivity absolutely Lisa I believe you're a very resilient person uh, can you give our listeners three take-homes for a resilient mind I think the first one is the word dumping or the word vomit, the journaling, being able to take out those extra stressors that you have that fog your mind um, and that cause you to lose your bandwidth. So you won't be able to concentrate on the goals that you have. So word dumping and journaling is one. Second of all is the um, partnership. Find somebody in your life, whether it's a best friend, whether it's a partner, life partner, a husband or a wife, to be able to help to build that resilient mind, share that pathway and share those goals that you want to have um and then the third thing is 
we live in such a beautiful world as to get out and enjoy it. You know, even though we live in Ireland, wild Atlantic way that we have here, rains for most of the year, enjoy the rain still, you know, go out, see the world and just think that our problems that we have that we feel may be very, very big is actually small in the grand scheme of things. And I think when you get out into the world and enjoy what we have in nature, it just puts things into perspective. And finally for you, Lisa, what's the meaning of life? (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's enjoyment. I think it's enjoying being here in the present, enjoying every interaction that we could have, whether it's with your pets, your animals, whether it's with other people, whether it's with nature, enjoying what you do and enjoying being here because we're only here for a short time and you really want to make sure that on the other side, you can say, well, actually, I had great crack. Well, Lisa Cunningham, it's been wonderful having you in the doctor's chair. Keep leading, keep inspiring and keep enjoying being your purpose at work and more importantly, at home as well. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to my podcast in the doctor's chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.